Welcome to the Legislate podcast, a place to learn about the latest insights and trends in property, technology, business building, and contract drafting. Today, I'm excited to welcome Tom Lawrence on the show. Tom is the founder and CEO of MVPR, the company which automates PR for startups. Tom, thank you for taking the time. Would you like to please share a bit of background about yourself and MVPR? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on. So for background on MVPR, and I guess it ties into my own. So I'm nearly 10 years in the PR industry. Started out by working with boutique PR agencies and I was a shoe-in sort of CMO for seed and series A stage companies for a while. And then most recently I joined the largest PR agency in the world, which is called Edelman. And I helped them build their offering for early stage startups. And while I was working there and before it has to be said, you can't help but notice there are a ton of different issues and cracks that exist within the PR industry as a whole. And yeah, by working with mostly growth stage companies at Edelman, I realized that there was this essentially a disconnect between how companies and startups can communicate with journalists and how journalists reach out to companies for information. And I realized that at Edelman, essentially what we were doing was we were charging companies a lot of money every month in order to connect them with the right journalists. And nearly always the problem that I encountered was companies that wanted to, yeah, they wanted to use earned media to either, yeah, gain credibility with the audience they were going out to, whether it was employees or whether it was yeah investors or whether they wanted to gain more customers. The challenge they had was not necessarily what they wanted to say, but actually who they could say it to and who would be interested in receiving content from them. And as the conduit for that information at Edelman, we were charging, yeah, as I mentioned, we were charging companies, in most cases, tens of thousands of pounds a month to effectively match them with the right journalists. And so I thought there was something more that we could do to automate that process because the PR industry as a whole is barely digitalized, let alone automated. And so we began building MVPR and MVPR started out as a kind of a place for companies to share information with journalists in a way that journalists wanted to receive it. And it's grown more into a, a platform that helps companies yeah, communicate with journalists, give them access to journalists, and then also collects data on the back of those interactions so that in the future, you can actually improve how you communicate, not just rely on somebody external usually to, to advise you based on their experience, what you should do. So yeah, that takes yeah. us up to date, I think. That's really interesting. And I guess if you're automating PR, do PR agencies feel like you're eating their lunch or? Yeah, they do. I think it depends on the agency. I know there are a number of agencies that we, yeah, we, uh, we've been in contact with kind of naturally because of my history and the contacts I have, but there are some agencies that absolutely feel like we're eating their lunch and that's because we are. And there are some agencies that actually see us as a huge benefit because just because we provide our technology to at the moment, early stage companies and SMBs, we do reduce a huge amount of the manual legwork that everybody has to do when they do PR activities, because it doesn't really matter whether you're doing those activities in-house or in an agency, they're the same. And for some of these, yeah, some agencies, many of whom have actually, yeah, some of those, the owners of the agencies have invested in us because, and then they've adopted us to use on their own clients. Now in the long term, we'll see like how that fares, but what we do allow those agencies to do is to move away from the kind of manual legwork that they usually have juniors do on accounts and actually move into more of the strategic advisory, which in my opinion will always be necessary. And so, yes, to answer your first question, 
we are eating their lunch, but not everyone's completely reticent to, to working with us. Perfect. No, that's really interesting. And yeah, as a recent user of MPR, MVPR, I've been very impressed with the results and the exposure. And just, I guess the, as you mentioned earlier, it's all about presenting yourself in with the right information that journalists want to consume. So hopefully that, that facilitates that process. Thank you. So great. And yeah. And uh, what's been your favorite moment so far? My favorite moment so far, I always use the analogy of it's, there's a, so my, my, my old man's an architect and whenever the roof goes on, there's this celebration, which is called old school celebration called topping out where basically you, after you've built the kind of the structure, the roof goes on and everyone celebrates because now you can work on the thing with inside without worrying about rain getting in. And I think probably the, yeah, the largest moment so far has been when we got our first press page up and the kind of, I so to speak, the roof went on for the earliest MVP released. The earliest MVP we released was on Notion, actually, it was a Notion page, but the, the first tech version we released was the first press page. So I think that moment was probably one of my favorite and then uh, tons since then, but I think you always look back to the beginning. Yeah, that's quite a milestone going from yeah, MVP to real tech product. And what do you wish you had known before starting MVPR? Oh God, all sorts of things. I think I maybe not wished I'd known, but I, I wish there was some way of telling founders in advance how much of your time will be spent on the things you really enjoy, like product. In my case, it's product and hiring versus how much time you'll inevitably have to spend on, yeah, the things that are less interesting, picking through the problems that you have with Stripe and other, other things like that. That said, I don't know, it's all, well, I think one of the major benefits of being a founder in general is, I was actually talking to my girlfriend about this last night is, Yes. Okay. You may, you may work through weekends sometimes, but there's never a moment where you dread going back to work. So yes. Okay. Maybe sometimes I'm fixing problems with Stripe or working out how to automate invoices and stuff like that. I think a problem that most people have and I'm looking forward to it. Maybe something I wouldn't have admitted earlier in my life, but yeah. So that's maybe one thing I wish I'd known in advance, but now that I'm doing it every yeah, you'll obviously know this too, but every second of that is, is pretty fun. I can relate. And I guess uh, if you're dreading going back to work the next day, then something's not going well or something's not right. But at least with Legislate, as a founder, you don't need to worry about legal anymore, which can be quite a pain and a cost. That's great. You mentioned your automating PR for startups. Where do you see yourself and MVPR in the next five, 10 years? What's the big vision? I am awful at doing the 10 year, 10 year vision. I work on like a like six, 12, 18 months timeline, which is probably a little bit more product focused than I care to admit I am. But so in, in five years, let me start with the easy bit. So five years time in five years, we'll, we will be an operating system for anybody that wants to do PR activity. And that's on. So if you think of us as a marketplace on the one hand side, you have basically companies that want to share information. On the other hand side, you have journalists that want to find information. And so from the companies that want to share information, yeah, we'll be an operating system. They'll do all of their PR and comms activities. Anything to do with earned media will happen within MVPR. Sharing content that you have on socials in a structured way that will happen on MVPR. Looking at the data feedback that you get after pitching a particular campaign and looking at exactly which journalists engaged and how they engaged down to the likelihood that if you pitch them again, they're going to, they're going to publish it. All of that will happen on MVPR and even the automation of, yeah, the creation of 
texts and messages that we know will land with journalists in a particular way based on data feedback. Again, that all happens with us. And then from the journalist side, we will have advanced the search function so that journalists receive exactly what they want to receive. They're able to, yeah, literally pick and choose the information that they get into their kind of their portal, their dashboard themselves and into their inbox. I think, yeah, reduce, I think it's the starting point is always reduce the amount of e emails that are about useless things that go into journalist inboxes. And that's where we start. And hopefully by the end, they'll just come to us for all the information they need. So that's five years in 10 years or tough to say, I think the media industry is changing so dramatically at the moment, it's very difficult to see what a 10 year roadmap might look like, because I think the key for us is just to remain flexible. If I look at the trends that are happening at the moment though, yeah, things like automated newsrooms or the use of machine learning and AI in newsrooms themselves to source information. We're looking at the way that media itself is changing. Lots of people consuming from, yeah, consuming news, especially via lots of different channels. And sometimes that's via a seven second video and other times it's through a 15 minute long read. I think the thing that's coming together for me across all of those platforms is the communities around which news is shared, they're getting smaller and smaller. And I think yeah, news in the future or media content in the future is going to be very community focused. Mostly these days, people find out about articles. I say people of my age group, my sort of millennial age category, we find things on Instagram or on LinkedIn. We find things on, yeah, occasionally on TikTok. If that's where we are, we find things in WhatsApp or we get sent emails or forwarded emails or newsletters by friends. And the way that we read news and receive it is very local. And so I think what we have to do in the interim is think about how that information is ultimately going to be read and be flexible enough to adapt to it in the future, rather than necessarily worrying about how we'll actually get there in 10 years time. Cause I think predicting that's going to be too difficult, too far out. If I was going to make a prediction, I would say that it's pretty likely we become a new source in our own right. When we have as much company data on, on, on MVP as we will at scale, we have a lot already, but when we do have, yeah, say we have a thousand, 10,000 customers on board. There'll be a lot of information there that people can use to write articles. And so I see us becoming a new source in our own. Oh, that's interesting. And I guess that with media evolving, it might mean also broadening the definition of journalist on your platform to yeah, newsletter <laughs> or whatever. Well, uh, in, exactly. In, individuals that can share content with credibility. I think that's typically what influencers are as we know them. But I think we think of influencers right now as, yeah, Instagram influencers or TikTok influencers that share, yeah, content. Sometimes there's advertising behind it and sometimes there isn't. And it's tough to know if there is or if there isn't. I think one of the biggest advantages we have is we keep factual information predominantly. And we, yeah, we have what's in the industry known as like double sourced it. So the information we have, we know is accurate at a point in time. And I think for sure, I don't know what your perspective is on this, but I'm seeing amongst my peers in any case, people want to read factual information and know its accuracy. And I think there's a really interesting opportunity in the news space more generally to share, yeah, the kind of the factual content or the fact, the factual grading of an article, even if it's thought an opinion piece or somebody writes a thought leadership piece off the back of something that is factual, you want to know what the threshold, yeah, what's the rating on it? Has it got absolutely nothing factual in it? And it's always entirely based on opinion, which a lot of what we read is, or can it be verified? 
And so I think there's a really interesting opportunity there. We could go into talking about decentralized news networks and how I think a DAO might be the future of, yeah, a version of the DAO might be the future of news whereby factual information is tokenized and freelance journalists use tokenized information to write articles that have high token value that are then read by readers that, yeah, will set their thresholds at which they're, in, they're willing to read articles and yeah, and then either pay per article or share their data in, in, in exchange for yeah, tokens that will buy them access to the articles they want to read that they know have factual information in them. That's where I really think we're going. And I guess we have to be in a position to support that. Very interesting and seems like a valid blockchain use case. You're one of the first. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I suppose you're thinking about that too. I suppose you're thinking about blockchain use cases as well with legislate. Potentially, although I think if you think about contract, you might want to stamp a version of the contract on the blockchain to certify that yeah. this is the contract that was signed. It would probably have to be a private blockchain because I doubt the companies would want or employees would even want their employment contracts stamped on a public blockchain. Yep. And then second of all, contracts do get changed all the time. Amendment letters are written. So I think that's something that we need to anticipate and work out how to do that in a clean way. But if we're thinking about for verification purposes, I reckon using Onfido or one of those identity verification APIs is a much more effective way. Or even simple email domain verification is probably the most effective way of determining if this person has the right to create a contract on behalf of the party that, you know, is present or even things like for landlords to prove ownership of their property. There are APIs that exist to do all of that right now. And it's not necessarily something that we could put it on the blockchain for the sake of putting on the blockchain. But, but I think for us, the value would more be certify that the contract hasn't changed in legislate between or post-signature. So, okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But yeah, I think there's. Yeah. As you say, whether it goes yeah. on blockchain or not, it's not so important. Yeah, but maybe one day, I, I think we will get there one eventually, but, but yeah. And as a founder with a growing product and growing team, what are the key contracts you interact with the most? Great segue. Uh, yeah, I think employee contracts is obviously, I think some of the first things that you create realistically, I think if in my, I'm a second time founder. I think in my first time founder, if you use an NDA was probably the first thing I would create. And while that's, yeah, obviously always still relevant to an extent, difficult to uphold. So I think you stop writing NDAs, I think after you, you finish your first startup, but yeah, I think employee contracts, contractors as well, partnership contracts is a big one for us. We have a lot of partnerships and having those kinds of contracts in place is really important. And then, yeah, naturally all of the things around investors, we, yeah, we raised hundred K in, in November using an ASA, an incredibly challenging process, not least if you're coming fresh to the way that ASAs work, there's a ton of stuff that not, has nothing even to do with the ASA that you need to understand around SNSEIS and stuff like that. I would say that's, yeah, th those are the kinds of contracts that we use most frequently. And then of course, the client contracts, which we have to an extent kind of automated the production of, but, but yeah, they change all the time. So it's, it can be a challenge. And with those contracts, have there been any areas of friction? I imagine, you know, ASA, there's always friction because investors have their own unique requirements, but maybe around employment or NDAs or partnership agreements, are there any common patterns that you've identified and have you found a
I think openly less with the ASAs, but with partnership and client contracts, absolutely yes. Usually it's tighter privacy for clients, which is a good thing. And occasionally it's to take some of the clauses around privacy that we have out so they can share it more widely. And very early on, for example, something that we thought would happen, but weren't sure would happen would be people adding MVPR's press page to their websites at the bottom of the, in the footnotes, in the footer to have as a standalone press page. And we had a clause in the contract originally that sort of implied that they couldn't do that and which we obviously had to take out. So that was one of those things where early you realize you're actually like shooting, literally shooting yourself in the foot. But so that was, yeah, of course that was one that came out very quickly, but of course, yeah, every client has slightly different demands, especially when you're dealing with kind of uh, companies in different countries. So the laws, for example, for information sharing are much tighter in Germany and Europe than they are in the UK and the US. We often have like US companies will question a couple of clauses that we've got in our standard European contracts around information sharing. So yeah, every company is different, depends on the jurisdiction they're in. And then yeah, it depends on how large the company is too, and what they expect. So that on the client side, for sure. And then definitely on the partnership side too, we partner with VCs, accelerator programs, we partner with sort of ecosystem players in different ways. And while those are becoming more un uniform over time, I think we're still in the phase where we're adjusting lots of those contracts to suit the in, in, like individual entity rather than just having a very clean kind of like partnership sign up. You have three options, here you go. We're still very much adjusting as we go. That's, that's very interesting. And I guess the yeah, from an SEO perspective, you want your clients to link back to you. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, stuffed. yeah, yeah, but yeah, lesson learned quickly. So yeah, Tom, I'm conscious I've already taken a lot of your time. So I'm going to ask you the, yeah, I'm, I'm going to ask you the closing question. We ask all our guests. So if you're being sent a contract to sign today, what would impress you? If it had to legislate on the header, <laughs> is, that, is that the correct answer? Um, that's actually the first time anyone has ever said that, but you'll be, you'll be pleased to know that on legislate, you can add your own logo so that MVPR is on the header. Very cool. Uh, what would impress me in a contract? That's a really hard question to answer. The things that impress me most with contracts are our simplicity where, yeah, I think it, no lawyer, so I'm not the best person to comment on this, but. Yeah, where I find you, yeah, you often have the option to have a contract that's 15 or 20 pages long, or you could do that in four pages or five pages. And I find, yeah, where there is simplicity, there's a lot to be gained on both sides. And so that tends to be, uh, yeah, that tends to impress me when someone could send over a very complex contract and actually they send over one that's much, much more easy to understand from a layman's perspective, which it sounds like you've described legislate. We simplify the language so that it's easy to understand for non-lawyers. But when contracts are long, because sometimes they have to be long, we do like to summarize the key terms at the top, but also in a more of a question and answer type format so that you can digest your contract in the format, which is easiest for you. For the listeners, I've not tried legislate yet. So that was not a pre, yeah, yeah. That wasn't a recorded, re-recorded answer, pre-recorded answer. That's really cool. Perfect, yeah. Great. And maybe we should do a second episode once you've started using legislate. So. Thanks, Charles. I'd love to. Thank you, Tom. And yeah, best of luck conquering and automating PR. Thanks, Charles.